What a wonderful promise to us, church, that we are invincible, not because of who we are, but who Christ is. We dismiss our age fourth through second grade at this time. Looks like we have Mrs. Pipo back there for our children's church. So age four through second grade, you're dismissed at this time. We're, we're on, the final, on the final stretch of the book of Ephesians and looking forward to what God has for us this week and the next two weeks. Uh, next, as I said, next week, Jacob will be preaching on the armor of God. And then the week following, Michael will be preaching on the closing section after that to wrap up the book. And then we will have a missionary the following week, and then we will do a five-week series on standing firm against cultural pressures. And that will take us into the Advent season. I'm looking forward to that. But it has been a great study. I mean, I've enjoyed it. Well, if you haven't enjoyed it, that's, that's I guess, maybe partially on me, but uh, I won't take all the credit uh, for not you enjoying it. So, uh, But we're going to be looking uh, today at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 20, 10 through 12, and looking at the topic of battle ready, no your enemy. But before we do that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning. Lord, we are in a spiritual battle. And as we've seen throughout the book of Ephesians, there is a very strong corporate theme. We're not in this battle alone. And I know that some people may struggle to want to be an active part of a local church such as ours. Or maybe they've been here for many years and they just isolate. Well, that's not what you've called us to do. We're in a war. We don't enter a war by ourselves. No one fights the battle alone. We need our brothers and sisters. We need the encouragement as we walk and we stand firm and fast, putting on the armor of God. And and we need that from one another, and we need that from you as well. And as we see that today, Lord, may we not just see this is what I need to do individually, but that we need to be encouraging one another to stand firm, to be putting on the armor of God. And we just are so grateful that we have a church body here that we can pray with, that we can study God's word with, that we can weep with in the midst of difficult times, that we can share joy with in those moments when abundance is great. Lord, link us together. Bind us together as the body is to be. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this past week, my wife sent me a video, and as I opened it, I, I was like, I have not seen this video in a long time. It's from 1965. It's a, it's a radio monologue by a guy named Paul Harvey. Now, probably if you're over the age, well, I'm going to put myself, if you're over the age of 40, you probably know who Paul Harvey is. If you're under, you may not know. And if you're definitely under the age of 20 or 30, you probably have no clue who I'm talking about. Uh, but he did a radio program often. And in 1965, he did a monologue entitled, If I Were the Devil. And I remember hearing this many years ago. And as my wife sent it back to me, and as I was thinking about what I'm preaching about, I thought this would be an appropriate thing for us to hear here as we open the message. Now, it's not in you know, the quality of our MP3, so it might sound a little scratchy for you younger people, but this is how radio used to be for us. Uh, And so uh, you're going to have to bear with that a little bit. But I I would like to play that at this time. Hopefully. If you click it one more, it should start. Maybe, yeah. If I were the devil, if I were the devil, 
If I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree. The. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey. Good day. I was like, you had to have the good day in there, right? It's 1965, 58 years ago. Somewhat prophetic, right? As we read some of those things that had not yet taken place that are actually taking place we're reminded that Satan is not an inactive being, but rather very active. And our main idea as we look at this morning's message is that Christians have tools necessary to overcome spiritual wickedness. We have the tools necessary to overcome spiritual wickedness. We live in a wicked world. And as I've been saying throughout our study in Ephesians, it's not like we're the most wicked society that's ever lived. We tend to think that way. Wickedness has always existed. Those things that Paul Harvey was describing were already an undercurrent in our society. They just weren't maybe quite as public as they are now. But Satan always seeks to destroy. And as believers, we can sometimes think, you know what? 
The Christian life is just too hard. But the reality is, is a Christian life is a battleground. It is not a playground. For we are facing an enemy much stronger than us. And we are in need of strength from the Lord. And so as we look at this, we're going to see uh, the enemy that we face. And we're going to see the strength that we have. And, and, and we're going to start there with the enemy we face. And we're going to be battle ready. We must have a thorough understanding of who is our enemy. If we don't have a proper understanding, we're going to likely underestimate our spiritual adversary and see little, if any, need for the strengthening that Paul addresses. We're going to enter into the fray unarmed, instead relying on our own much insufficient strength. And that's going to result in what? It's going to result in defeat. In order to properly understand who we're dealing with spiritually, we're going to do something different than we normally do with the text. We're going to start at the back of the text and we're going to work to the front. Because I think it's nice to close a message with some good news rather than to close it with the bad news. And so we're going to start in verse 12 and work our way back to get a survey of the situation. And then we're going to see how in verses 10 and 11, how Paul encourages us how we can effectively stand against our opponents. The first enemy we see is in verse 12. We see spiritual wickedness. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's very important and significant for us to see that Paul uh, is not denying that we struggle with flesh and blood because we, we, we do struggle with flesh and blood. Rather, he is pointing out that our struggle is much greater than the surface level of our physical struggles. You see, brother and sister, our true enemy is not physical. It is not flesh and blood. And this is very important as we understand who the enemy is. Because unbelievers are not the enemy, my friend. No, they are the mission field. They are the ones to whom we take the light. You see, our Struggle is with the spiritual demonic wickedness and with the devil. Paul uses a very unusual word here, as you notice in the beginning of verse 12, uh, regarding how we combat a spiritual enemy. He uses that word wrestle. That's not something we usually typically think of when we think of somebody combating a spiritual enemy. If you saw me wrestling with nobody up here by myself and you said, what are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual enemies. You would say you've lost your mind, Pastor Matt. That's not, so that word wrestle may be a struggle for us, but what he's trying to help us understand is that there is a close combat that takes place spiritually between the believer and the wickedness of this world. And he's using this illustration of wrestling. It's very popular in uh, Western Asia Minor. In fact, wrestling and forms of it are still popular today. We see that uh, involved with uh, the rise of mixed martial arts in our world. But what's involved with this? There's, there's tackling, there's throwing, there's throwing of punches, there's kicks. All of these things are taking place. But if you've ever watched a wrestling match or a mixed martial arts, you can't stand on the outside and try to win. Someone's trying to run around the edge of the arena or the edge of the circle and, and not trying to wrestle. That's not wrestling. That's, that's trying to avoid getting into the fray. And we, brother and sister, must get into the fray. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. And Paul's readers, they would have been very aware of the spiritual wickedness that was happening 
If you remember from our study in the book of Acts, they would have seen what had happened with the Jewish, Jewish exorcist in Acts 19, 13 through 17, who tried to expel a demon in Jesus' name without even knowing Jesus. What was the result? The demon was like, I have no idea who you are. I know who Jesus is, but I don't know who you are. And he overpowered them and stripped them, and they fled naked and battered in a state of panic. It's very interesting that in the following verses right after that, what happens? We see that these new believers who were formerly occultists, practitioners of of, of demonic-type uh, worship, they took their valuable books of magic that were worth much money, and they burned them. You see, upon salvation, they realized that the demonic nature of how they lived was wrong, and they immediately wrestled with it in their own lives and destroyed it. You see, Paul does help us, though. We may not have occultists. Maybe you're an occultist and you're here, but that's not the background that I'm aware of of many people in this room. We've never maybe uh, bowed down to Satan, gone into the woods, sacrificed animals to the devil. But we do face demonic forces. And Paul describes this supernatural wickedness in three ways. He describes them first as rulers and authorities, and this is emphasizing their strength. Now, there are a variety of interpretations on what this list means. Some believe it it is a hierarchy of angelic, demonic beings. Others believe it refers to these beings who are behind the societal evil that is around us. And after my study, I believe it it is tending to help us see a description of the supernatural wickedness wielded by demonic beings. And this first characteristic we, we see is that they are very powerful beings. Now, they're not all powerful. I do want to uh, make sure that we're aware of that. We don't need to live in constant fear of them as they are not all powerful, but they're not to be trifled with as we were just uh, reminded of it back in Acts chapter 19 when these men tried to mess around with demons. But with their power, they exercise authority in the spirit realm. And we see that evidence in this physical realm as well. But we also see another description. their cosmic powers over this present darkness. And this demonstrates their worldwide influence. This phrase is often used in astrology in ancient times regarding the planets, which they thought to control the destiny of humanity. You can find this in the Orphic hymns in Zeus, the rabbinical writings of Nebuchadnezzar and other pagan rules, as well as the ancient writings of Roman emperors. Those examples point to the understanding of the worldwide rule that was understood at that time of these supernaturally wicked beings. We see in the book of Daniel, chapter 10, you're welcome to turn there, I'm not going to turn there, but in verse 13 we read in the prophecies of a prince of Persia who withstood Michael, the archangel, who was called one of the chief princes. And these princes are referring to angelic beings, the prince of Persia being evil, Michael being good. Now, it's impossible to know whether all demons have territorial authority or whether all uh, territories have demonic princes because we don't have that sufficient revelation. However, it does seem very clear from passages like Daniel, from what we read here in Ephesians chapter 6, that some demons do have territorial assignments, even if all of them don't. But we also see a third description. We see spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, which expressly characterizes their evilness, their wickedness. We know that power itself is neutral. 
But we also know that power is often used well or it is abused. And our spiritual enemies in the wickedness of the darkness of the spiritual world use their power destructively. They despise the light, for darkness is their natural home, the darkness of deceit and the darkness of evil. But it's very interesting that as we read in the Gospels when Jesus Christ came to earth, the unprecedented outburst of activity of the spiritual forces of evil became more and more evident as he would come across demoniacs all across his ministry. So any hope to have victory over these demonic forces, the descriptions that we see come under the understanding that we know they have no moral principles. They have no honor. They're ruthless. They're, they're malicious in their strategies. And while they may feign peace, they seek only destruction at the will of their leader, Satan. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan has a design for his minions to deceive and to do whatever is necessary to lead us astray. Now, as I say this, you might be thinking, really, Pastor Matt, demonic wickedness? We don't have that type of influence in the United States. Seems like you're a little overreactionary to me. But I cannot help but think that if Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, address the spiritual demonic wickedness, then we too would be foolish to downplay its reality. Spiritual wickedness is regularly seen fleshed out in the physical realm. We see this in the ideologies of our culture. They're otherworldly, you might say. They are a direct assault on God's biblical commands. And as we have seen throughout chapters 4 through 6, we are called as believers to do what? We're to walk in the Spirit. Brother and sister, we're not at war, as I've said earlier, against our neighbors who are deceived by the wicked one and his minions and the great spiritual wickedness of our world. They're not the enemies. As we see our media, the political structures, we see the leaders, and we even sadly see religious leaders pointing humanity in rebellion against God and His Word, we must be aware that is not the enemy. There is a greater battle taking place in the hearts and minds of men. And the only solution is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the power of the gospel that changes us. So what does this mean practically? On the back, you have your first standing firm in Christ. Are you more likely to be cruel and unloving towards those through whom Satan is working, or naive toward them? How can you remain both loving and wise towards those who mock the church or teach falsehood to the church? And you're welcome to answer these in any way. I just kind of work through them in my own way to kind of give us a guide as we work through this. But because our enemy isn't flesh and blood, how, how are you interacting with these people that are making biblically and morally wrong choices and decisions? Well, as we read the New Testament, I think it's helpful for us to look at the responses of Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul as they help us to navigate how we do this. They, they love sinners in spite of the fact that Satan had blinded these individuals and was using them towards his purposes. We think of Jesus as he reaches out to Zacchaeus, a hated tax collector. 
And he loved him, even though he was a puppet of the Roman Empire, even though he he was a financial abuser of his own people, the Jews. Jesus loved him and reached out to him. Paul repeatedly entered the pagan cities in Asia Minor, in Greece, in Italy, and he proclaimed the good news, even if it meant that he would be beaten, imprisoned, or left to die. You see, Jesus and Paul, they did not see people as the enemy, but rather saw their father, the devil, as the enemy, the minions of spiritual wickedness. But at the same time, both Jesus and Paul were not naive towards individuals through whom Satan was working. Jesus regularly rebuked the religious leaders for their false ideas of worshiping God as they were leading others astray. If you remember the the rich young ruler who thought that he had it all figured out, that he had obeyed the law, and, and Jesus very quickly pointed out, yeah, okay, you've obeyed it all. Here's this one thing I need you to do. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the rich man walked away, for he could not give up his idol. So Jesus did speak truth. The Apostle Paul, while in Ephesus, was preaching the gospel along with Silas when a demon-possessed girl followed him and Silas and was proclaiming truth. These are prophets of the one true God. And Paul, in the name of Jesus Christ, rebuked the demon and cast that demon out of her. They were willing to speak truth when necessary. But here's the thing. Discernment is what is necessary as we engage the lost. How do we confront them? We need to have compassion for those who do not know the truth particularly those who have never wrestled with it or even considered it. We pray that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes, their spiritual eyes, to see the truth of the gospel, knowing that in Christ they will be saved. And for those who are leading others astray, we can have compassion for their souls by lovingly and firmly speaking the truth about the wickedness they are promoting. This is where the conversation can get difficult for many of us. It, you see, it's easy for us to jump on, on social media, like a Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is. And it's easy for us to just get kind of raging on there and point the finger and get ugly and nasty with that individual. But it's in the face-to-face conversations that we need discernment because we wouldn't do that. I remember seeing a video of two dogs that are on, on a side of a glass door and they're barking at each other ferociously like they're going to kill each other. And they open the door and then they just kind of like turn their heads and like kind of walk away like... Well, I really wasn't going to do anything. I'm too scared to do anything. And then the door closes and they start yelling at each other. Yeah, that's the danger of social media and engaging in that platform. Build conversations. Get down with people. Know them. And ask for discernment and, 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 and wisdom. You see, we can't buy into the lie that silence is best. We just don't want to rock the boat, we say. And this comes from the notion that Christianity is an exit from warfare rather than an entrance into it. We're reminded we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness that seeks to destroy the lives of men and women, to keep them in bondage to sin. He wants them to never hear the gospel. And we have a responsibility to lovingly engage them. But behind all of this is a specific being that we see in the end of verse 11. We see the devil, the schemes of the devil. You see, teaching on the schemes of the devil has fallen out of favor in the church. The church teaches often on the flesh, which is necessary. Our flesh is at war within us, and we're to put it to death. As Paul tells us in Romans 8.13, we don't want to be corrupted by the flesh. 
We also need to demolish the arguments that are setting themselves up against the knowledge of God, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. But here, Paul reminds us that the devil is very real. In Christ, we don't just receive God's love, but we also receive all of the devil's hate. You have on the back of your insert that quote by uh, the great Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have all become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. And the devil is very real. And we need to be aware of it. And I've got three descriptions. These aren't the only three descriptions because we could be here all morning describing what the Bible says. But three, I think, important descriptions for us about who the devil is. First, he hates God and his people. The devil hates God and his people. He is a rebellious angel that God threw out of heaven. And in these verses, John 8, 44 and Revelation 12, 9 and, and verse 12, we see that he was filled with fury. Because he knows that his time is short. And he leads the whole world astray. He is the father of lies. We see very clearly the hatred that God, uh, that he has for God and his people in the book of Job. In Job 1, we read that Job is this righteous man. He loved the Lord. He loved his family. And the author then pulls back the curtain of heaven and reveals that Satan has access to God's presence to ask what he can and cannot do. A very quick side note, it's important for us to be reminded as we read through this that though God and Satan are enemies, it's not really a struggle there. It's not as though God is winning sometimes and then the devil is winning other times. No, God is in complete control. Satan must seek permission. And so Satan, as he is in there, he says, God says to him, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, really, God? I mean, he's got the the best life anybody could have. Why wouldn't he love you? Why wouldn't he worship you? And God tells him and permits Satan to assail Job, but you can't touch his person. And so Satan leaves and he does that. He, He takes his children from him. He takes all of his wealth from him. He destroys his life. But Job is faithful. And so Satan returns and seeks permission to afflict Job's personage, which God permits, but he cannot kill Job. And Satan obliges afflicting Job with boils and sores. And in the end, what happens? Job is faithful. But why does Satan do that? Because he hates people and he hates God. And he wants to have victory over them. But that's not all that he does. He doesn't just hate God and his people. He has to find other ways. He mixes truth and error. Genesis chapter 3, we're very familiar with this. From the beginning of time, Satan's chief strategy has been to tempt us to doubt God's word, specifically its clarity, its truth, and its goodness. As as a believer reads God's word, you're going to face familiar temptations, as did Adam and Eve. Did God really mean that we're not to satisfy the desires of the flesh in that way? God doesn't really frown on your lifestyle. He he wants you to be happy. You'll do much better if you make up your own rules rather than holding to what this old book says. These are the same lies that were in the garden. And Satan simply wants to create doubt. 
The reformer Martin Luther wrote, his greatest temptation in life was to doubt God's goodness. He, he faced depression regularly at the thought of I could lose God's goodness. I am that, Satan was creating that doubt that God doesn't really love him. In fact, he wrote after a particularly difficult stretch in his life, for more than a week I was close to the gates of death and hell. Satan wants us to doubt that God is good and that he wants what's best for us. And like our predecessors, Adam and Eve, we're tempted to doubt and disobey God's word. You see, Satan seems to make disobedience attractive. It, it, it will feel good. In fact, you'll feel more like an adult if you just do your own thing as he encourages us to follow our appetites and our desires. What we actually receive, however, is opposite of what he promises. We receive death. We receive exclusion, exclusion from a relationship with God, both now and for eternity. But thankfully... Jesus Christ did what you and I could not, right? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness led by the Holy Spirit, and he's tempted by Satan three times. And in these temptations, what does Satan do? At one point, he makes his truth and error in order to deceive the Lord. He said to Jesus, if you are God's son, you can throw yourself down from the temple because you know the Bible says that the angels will save you. I mean, say it's even quoting Scripture. And Jesus replied, Who are you to test God's Son? You have no right to do what you're doing. He was tempting to create doubt. And maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, well, I don't, I don't know what, what you're talking about, Pastor. This whole devil stuff you know, seems kind of weird, uh, which is kind of interesting. I mean, our, our town is really into Halloween and like, not just, not just the, I want to say soft Halloween, but like into the, like, I don't know, I'd say demonic Halloween. Like, I go on a walk every morning, there's some guy that's got a knife ready to kill me standing by a tree. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of creepy. But it is real. And Satan wants us to think it's a joke. But you know what? Satan, <laughs> Satan wants you to think it's a joke because he doesn't want you to know that Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life, dying on the cross for your sins And then he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death forever, and sits at the right hand of the Father so that you and I can come to saving faith. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I would love to speak with you, following the service about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, how you can then understand the truths that we're talking about today. But the third characteristic we see about Satan is that he masquerades as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11.14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. If we're not walking in the Spirit, brother and sister, we will be easily duped by the devil. Satan knows that if he shows up as the boogeyman or something super scary, he's not going to get anywhere with us. But he can present his temptations through areas in which we're weak. Maybe it's through your phone. You're looking at things you shouldn't be looking at. You're talking to people you shouldn't be talking to. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in your relationships outside of the home or even inside the home. He's going to come in a way that looks attractive, but underneath it's actually not. We've seen this fleshed out again in the temptations of Christ in the wilderness where Satan tempts Jesus to turn stones to bread. He's like, you're famished. You haven't eaten for 40 days. Just turn them to bread. What was he doing? He was masquerading 
as one who was trying to, to help Jesus. And Jesus simply replies, no, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I think I've seen this really clearly demonstrated in C.S. Lewis's book, Paralandra, in which the hero, Professor Ransom, encounters a Satan figure by the name of Dr. Weston, and they live on what's called a flawless planet. It is a kind of an, an allegory of the Garden of Eden. As Dr. Weston, the satanic character, dispassionately rips helpless creatures apart because he has nothing else to do, C.S. Lewis describes the moment when Dr. Weston and Professor Ransom eyes me. And this is what it says. It says, It, referring to Dr. Weston, looked at Ransom in silence and at last began to smile. We have all often spoken, Ransom himself had often spoken, of a devilish smile. Now he realized that he had never taken the word seriously. The smile was not bitter nor raging in an ordinary sense, sinister. It was not even mocking. It seemed to summon Ransom with horrible naivety of welcome into the world of its own pleasures, as if all men were at one in those pleasures, as if they were the most natural thing in the world, and no dispute could have ever occurred about them. It did not, it did not defy goodness, this smile. It ignored it to the point of annihilation. This creature was wholehearted. The extremity of its evil had passed beyond all struggle into some state which bore a horrible similarity to innocence. It was beyond vice. And very simply, this character, his smile, it it drew people in. It wasn't something, the devil wasn't something that repulsed people. He is someone who seeks to, hey, welcome. I love you as you are. You're welcome to be whatever you want to be. You can pursue whatever you want with me. I am your friend. And he masquerades as an angel of light, and we as believers must be on guard against that. What does that mean for us practically, standing firm in Christ? The second one, do you tend to make too little or too much of the devil and his intentions and power? What effects does this have on your view of life and your fight against sin? Well, I've seen kind of two extremes in Christian circles. On one extreme, there can be a tendency to make too much of the devil. There are people that go around and they find the devil everywhere. They attempt exorcisms. There are best-selling authors who in some ways glorify the supernatural world leading astray. I believe naive believers with fantastic ideas of how they can uh, exercise demons, which is interesting. That's not what we see we're called to do as believers. We're to just proclaim the gospel. But on the other hand, I would say most in the American church have a small view of Satan. He's a caricature of what the Bible defines about him. He's this mischievous little gnomish creature who who runs around getting into trouble. But as we've just saw, he's slick. And he hates you, and he hates me, and he hates God. And he seeks to destroy as many of us as we can. And in the context of the Ephesian letters we have been studying, Satan's primary goal here in the book of Ephesians is the disunity of the body of Christ. He seeks to to bring it about in the division of the body through gossip, through slander, through prejudice. And all he needs is to convince us that he's not a big deal. But consider the reality that Satan knows 
God's Word more than we do. Imagine if you studied the Bible and only the Bible for 100 years, how well you would know the Bible. Now imagine if you had studied the Bible for five, six, seven thousand years. As I would argue, Satan probably knows God's Word so well. He knows how to twist it, as we saw in his temptation with Christ. He wants it to fancy our desires, and he has led myriads and myriads of human beings humans away from God because of his knowledge of the scriptures, and he has trained his host to do well. I'd encourage you, if you've never read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, it kind of helps you to kind of get an understanding of how Satan works. You see, he's content to let us think he's weak and silly. In fact, he wants you to think he's weak and silly, because that's when he can lure you and me into believing we don't need to worry about him. But we need the reminder from 1 John 3, 8 that Jesus came to destroy the devil and his works. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And this is good news, right, brother? Right, sister? Because we have a responsibility to do and a power to overcome this wickedness that Jesus has come to already destroy, which brings us to the strength we have. Now, you might be thinking, you spent a lot of time in that first part, Pastor Matt. I'm not spending as much time in the second part, so, so stay with me here. The strength we have, first we have the armor of God. Looking at the beginning of verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil Paul instructs us there is something we can do in this fight. We are to put on the whole armor of God. And Jacob's going to talk about that in detail next week. So I'm not going to get into that. But there is a call to action in the life of every believer to not just let go, let God handle everything. But there is a responsibility that we are to do something. In fact, this echoes the the words back in chapter 4, verses 22 through 24 about putting off. The old man putting on that which is new. And in the same way, brother and sister, we are to put on the whole armor of God. Not just parts of it that are easiest for us, but all of it. And we miss some of the nuance regarding this armor today. Because our soldiers don't go into armor wearing a suit of metal armor for their protection. But it was vital for the soldiers of that day to wear protection, to have the helmet and the breastplate. If you didn't go into battle with a helmet or breastplate, the consequences would probably be deadly. If you failed to bring a shield or proper footwear, one injury could eventually lead to your fatality. And the same is true for you and I, brother and sister. We need the entire armor for, as we have already seen, our adversary is powerful and diabolical. And he will find any way possible to bring about your demise and mine. It reminded me of the, of the uh, in Greek mythology, of Achilles, who was the child of a man and a goddess. And, and this goddess, knowing that her son was mortal, held Achilles by his heel and dipped him in the underworld river of Styx, hoping that it would somehow make him immortal. And Achilles goes on in Greek mythology to become a great warrior. Killed many individuals, won many battles, but eventually his demise was that he was shot in the heel and it killed him. He lacked protection in just one part of his body and it led to his demise. And that's why we have the Achilles injury today. 
I'm sorry for all you Aaron Rodgers fans, but that's what happens. Uh, the Achilles heel, it's, it, it just it sets you out for such a long time, right? So as believers, we need this armor because we must stand, as we've just seen, against the devil's schemes. And he's not speaking of we stand like a brick wall, but rather as a soldier in our full armor, defending against any enemy, but also ready to attack if necessary. And so as we put on the armor of God, it is our responsibility to also understand that we can't do it by ourselves. We are in need of supernatural assistance. This is, this is consistent teaching from the Bible. Some Christians are so self-confident that they, they think they can do it by themselves apart from God's strength. But Paul is very clear. There, we have a responsibility to act in combination with the divine enablement of God, which is seen there in verse 10, strengthening in the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The original wording in the Greek is passive and could and probably should be read, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His might. But there's also this aspect that we have to be willing to be strengthened. We have to be willing to let the Lord work in us. I'm reminded of the words in a mighty fortress. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dust, ask who that may be. This is where you would cheer if you could cheer in a song, right? Woo! Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same. And notice what it says. And He must win the battle. We put the armor of God. He strengthens us. He's the one who wins the battle. We need the right man on our side. And we've already seen in the Gospels that the Holy Spirit sent Jesus into the desert to fight against the temptations. And he had the perfect obedient faith as he battled those temptations. He did not doubt and disobey God. And in Jesus, brothers and sisters, we have the new and better Adam. We have the founder of our new humanity, the church. He completed the Christian life. A life of faith in God's word that resists Satan lies for you and for me because we cannot do it. We need the right man on our side. But as we, before we finish looking at this verse, Paul uses three different words here for power. They're translated strong, strength, and might. You see those there. There's three different Greek words. It's very interesting. They're the same three words that you see back in Ephesians 1.19 where Paul, as he's praying for the church, prays. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? Not only has the authority of the powers been broken, but also their final defeat is looming and the very existence of the church comprising of Jews and Gentiles reconciled through the death of Christ to God and to one another in the same body is the evidence of the purposes that God is moving triumphantly forward to the climax and it is in His power and working and might that all of this is taking place and we can have confidence that there is a decisive victory over the powers already. In Jesus Christ, for he is in the heavenlies. And in the end, the spiritual evil of this world cannot 
ultimately hinder the progress of the gospel because all things will be subject to Christ, as it says in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him the head over all things to the church. And this is the reason, brother and sister, that we're even in the battle to begin with. Because Jesus has already won it. We're not urged to win the victory We're urged to stand against the devil's poise. Christ is already seated in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority. And we have been raised to see with him. Remember that in chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6? And when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And what does it say in verse 6? And raised us up with him and seated us together with Christ in the heavenly places. Still, We need to utilize what has been won for us. And in this morning's passage, we need to put on the full armor of God in the power of Christ. Are you doing that, brother and sister? Are you resting in the strength of Christ? Are you trusting in Him? Are you putting on the armor of God? Because we face a mighty foe, which brings us to the big question. How are you utilizing the tools God has given you to overcome the spiritual wickedness of this age? You see, we've seen this morning that Paul does not necessarily satisfy our curiosities about the demonic hosts, but rather he calls us to protect the church through his plan. Put on the full armor of God and be strengthened in Christ, individually and corporately as the body. Satan is striving to tear down, or uh, God has torn down the walls of prejudice, and Satan is striving to rebuild those walls of prejudice and hate that were torn down in Christ. Does God intend for you and I as his redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Absolutely. And the powers of hell are working in our world, sowing the seeds of discord and sin and sowing them in our churches. And we must stand firm against this. We need to accept the reality seen here in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, that God, as Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, is stirring a call to battle. Do you not hear the bugle and the trumpet? We are being roused. We are being stimulated. We are being set upon our feet. We are told to be men. The whole tone is martial. It is manly. It is strong. Brothers and sisters, we are in the fight of our life for the entirety of our life until the Lord calls us home to be with Him in death or until He raptures His church. And so the peace that believers have through the cross of Christ is not experienced in some utopia. No, it's experienced in the midst of the church's relentless struggle against evil. And this is why you and I have been given Christ's strength and we have been given the armor of the Lord because they are indispensable to the task that we have been called to. In closing, I want us to sing a cappella the words from the third verse of A Mighty Fortress. And if I start it high, it starts high, so I apologize. It's a cappella, and we're just going to go through that. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has will His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness 
tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fail him. And that word is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we know we face a mighty enemy and Satan and his demons. We live in the midst of a great spiritual darkness. And Lord, we can get caught up in what's going on right in front of us, but you have called us to stand fast in the armor that you have provided for us, in the strength of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to do so. I pray, Lord, that we would encourage one another, our brothers and sisters, as we see them maybe failing in the fight against sin, that we would come and encourage them and help them, not in an accusatory manner, but coming alongside and loving them and sharing truth with them. And and if we are the ones who are living in sin, Lord, as we are confronted, Lord, may we know that that is the desire that you have for us to be brought back into a proper relationship with you. And that as we live in sin, that is the ploy of the devil and his schemes. He wants us to be content apart from you, apart from a proper relationship with you. And so, Lord, strengthen us and help us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.